All right, we are in the Corinthian letters, and in this series, uh, we have looked at the context of the Corinthian congregation, and the general theme of the book, which is unity, and I'll explain that in each section as we go through it. And we've seen in the first three chapters, today we'll get through the third and into the fourth, hopefully through the fourth, uh, that Paul is concerned about the disunity that's resulted from their adherence and preference for specific ministers and dividing uh, over these allegiances. Uh, Paul's going to use himself and Apollos as examples. Uh, Paul's not very good at speaking. Apollos is great at speaking. But Apollos is one who doesn't fully have, as we see in the book of Acts, the full understanding uh, that, that Paul has. Um, the problem is that presentation is more important to the Corinthians than substance. Paul addresses the priority of the message of the cross and Jesus crucified over and against the wisdom of men. And he says that the foolishness of God is better than the wisdom of men. Then using himself and Apollos as an illustration of the danger in focusing on presentation, Paul then explains that God that he wants them to understand that God did not choose the elite to come to Christ. He says, look among you, brethren, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the weak things and the base things and the things that are nothing to bring to nothing the things that are, that no one can boast in themselves or in man, but they will boast that they know the Lord. However, Paul says, there's a wisdom of the Spirit which God has revealed through the Scriptures. And his little quote I mentioned last week, his quote that everybody looks for, even some of the church fathers said, what letter is Paul quoting from? It's from Isaiah, but Paul is basically taking bits and pieces from all of Isaiah to give a synopsis of it and quoting it as scripture in that kind of context. And so um, uh, he says that those who know the plan of God do not know it through human wisdom. They know it through the Spirit and the Word. And it is the connection of the Spirit and the Word that is important there. And he says the elite, if they had known what God was doing, wouldn't have killed Jesus. So, he says, the natural man, even the elite, cannot know this by man's wisdom. He then explains to them, and that's how we ended, that their spiritual immaturity was preventing them from understanding more. He had to talk to them as babes and not as adults in that context. They think like men, the world, and they act like men, the world, because the world has favorites, and people, they like what they say, and they like what this one says, and they get into personality cults. Uh, and he says, uh, this is evidence when they focus on personalities and style, instead of Christ and his word, that they are immature. So today we're going to look at the last of this first section of the letter. Paul's going to explain the, what the proper function and understanding is for these ministers, in, in this case himself and Apollos. And I've called the message, Ministers as Accountable Stewards. Now, if you go through uh, many commentaries, the explanation that I'm going to give is not the explanation you get. And part of the reason for that is that we have kind of created a, 
approach to the Bible, instead of looking at it in context, we take key verses and sew them together into sermons. And that becomes a problem. It's one of the reasons why uh, going through biblical texts are important. And Paul said, I want these letters read in the churches. He meant in their entirety, not in pieces. So when we started the series, I asked you to keep reading the book of Corinthians over and over because you'll begin to get that context and you'll begin to focus and notice that Paul's still talking about the same theme throughout several of the chapters. So we're going to pick up a little bit in overlap from last week. And look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. Paul says, What then is Apollos, or what is Paul, but servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither is the one who planted, nor the one who waters, anything, but God who causes the growth. He's basically saying that the ministers are not significant. That is a hard concept for the American church. And for this incredible focus on ministry rather than on God, which is shot through this millennial generation. Um, They all want to do great things for God instead of follow a great God for some reason. Now, he says, so then the one who plants, the one who waters is nothing, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. They're both servants. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. God's using them both. God will bring the increase. And then God's going to judge these ministers as to what they were doing because they are servants. But he says in verse 9, you are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. If we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. This is really important. Paul says, the workers are not significant. The object of the workers is, and that's you, the congregation. The people of God are God's field. The people of God are God's building. That's what God is working on. He wants His servants to help Him do that. They're not significant in that process. Very difficult concept, as I said. So, we now pick up uh, with Paul explaining this process at verse 10. And that's where we left off last, last week. Verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw... Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is going to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, Paul is focusing here on 
how God's going to reward his servants, his ministers. Paul claims apostolic foundations as an apostle, and he says, I laid that foundation, and as he said before, I didn't want to know anything among you except Jesus and him crucified. The foundation of all that we do is that Jesus was incarnate, came from the Father, he died for a, as a substitution for our sin, bringing atonement, he rose from the dead, he is, he is entered into heaven, he will return to establish the kingdom. That is bedrock. That is foundation. No one better change that. Okay? But all that we do on top of that, all that we do in building a community of faith and growing in discipleship and in all the things that we do, uh, that needs to be done carefully. And so he says that when men build on it, when ministers preach and teach and counsel and, and, and uh, help people develop uh, in their development and discipleship, he says that what they are doing, in effect are building, and he uses two different kinds of materials. Gold, silver, and precious stone, and wood, hay, and straw. Now, uh, he then says there will be a testing on the day. He's talking about the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the day at the end when the kingdom is established. That's when God will judge ministers. He's not judging them now. Some are getting by with some incredible things. He's not judging them now. Okay? He's also not blessing them now. Be very careful of thinking that if a minister is being blessed, uh, his blessing is proof that God agrees with him. Or if God is testing him, that that is proof that God is disapproving of him. Got to be careful of that. Paul's going to argue about that. So, here's the deal. He says that it's going to be tested by fire. Now, you know the truth about gold and silver and precious stones. When they are fired, they become all the impurities get taken out and they become refined and pure. We we sing about refiner's fire. So that which they build if it's gold, silver and precious stone will remain and God, and Paul says God will then reward them because they have done well. Well done thou good servant, okay? We'll get to and faithful in a minute. He says, if it's wood, hay, and stubble, <clears throat> you know what happens with a fire. It just burns up. And he says, basically, they'll suffer loss, but they will be saved. This is not a salvation issue. It's a ministry stewardship issue that has accountability with God. Something that is rapidly being forgotten uh, in the congregation. So, he won't lose his salvation, but he may have no reward for his ministry. That's a pretty serious matter. Stand before God. <clears throat> I had a pastor once who, using this passage, uh, said, uh, you know, these people were going to come with all of the great stuff they thought they did for God. The fire will do it. They'll be standing there in their underwear, right? Uh, and that may, I don't know how that works, but the idea is that they will have nothing to show for all their labor. Now, in that context, then, Paul is going to make a very important point, and he does that in verses 16 and 17. Do you not know 
that you, this is a plural you, he's talking to the congregation, you are a temple of God. That when he said you are God's building, that's what he's referring to. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Now I want you to catch this. Paul says, I've laid a foundation. That foundation is Christ and, and, the, and the gospel. You can't lay another foundation. You can build on that foundation, and if you build well on that foundation, you will receive a reward. If you build terribly on that foundation, you'll suffer loss. But you will still be saved. However, you destroy the foundation. You do damage to the temple of God, and God will destroy you. That's a pretty serious thing. These verses aren't preached a lot. Pastors don't want to hear them. Okay? A violation, a damage to the church of God by a minister can bring severe punishment upon him. And we have examples of that in the Older Testament, but I don't, I don't have time to talk about that. So here's Paul's point. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says that we are all the body and that we are being brought to maturity by each part that we are so that the body builds itself up in love into a mature man uh, conforming to the image of Christ. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. Not just collecting butts in seats, but maturing people in the faith. And that's what the building of the ministers is. The foundation is laid by God and through the apostles. But the building on that is what ministers do. So, Paul says they have to be real careful not to mess with the foundation and to make sure that they're building appropriately, but not do damage to that building of God. Peter says the same thing. You, collectively, are being built up as living stones, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, to be a habitation for God's Spirit, a temple of God, a temple of people indwelt by God, mature in the faith. And Paul's arguing that these Corinthians are not mature. They are not being taught properly in that sense. If any minister destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Now we need to take that to heart. Jesus said this in the Gospels. Uh, in Mark 9, it's specifically there. It's in Matthew and Luke as well. Jesus said, there are going to be offenses. There are going to be problems. But woe to the man who brings those offenses. If you offend one of these little ones who believes in me, or you cause them to stumble. He's not talking about you made them mad. Okay, Paul made a lot of people mad. If you allow them to be taught falsely, or if you frustrate their faith so that they leave the faith, it is better for you never to have been born or to have a millstone tied around your neck and be cast in the sea. You can't do much damage there. God takes a very serious care of His people because He was willing to send His Son to die for their salvation. He is not going to allow some hotshot ministers 
to come in and do damage to that and go unpunished. So, having said that then, Paul is going to give us a statement. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. Who's he talking to? He's now talking to uh, the ministers. Okay? If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this world, in this age, he must become a fool so that he may become wise. I remember back in my Youth for Christ days when they would say to somebody, you know what? You have a lot of talent. God could really uh, use you. That's not servanthood. That's flattery. The reality is, if you come to Christ, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. That's a different path. And so the issue is, you can't be a hotshot, well-loved, and well-known in this world. The Bible says, be careful when all men speak well of you. The Bible tells us that if you live godly, you are going to be persecuted. You're not going to be popular. But we have a church now that thinks the best way to get the gospel to people is to be popular with them, not to speak truth to them. So he says, you have to become a fool. You have to use God's wisdom and not man's wisdom. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Now where is that written? It's written in the book of Job. Job chapter 5. So I want you to take a look at this. Now you guys know the book of Job. The book of Job is about a guy who's actually very righteous. And all of a sudden, his life goes down the toilet. And what do his friends say? You must not be living right. You must have sinned. Okay? Because man looks on the outside, God looks on the heart. So in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 8, he says, But as for me, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields, so that he sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn he lifts to safety. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. He captures the wise by their own cleverness and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. By day they meet with darkness, they grope at noon as in the night, but he saves from the sword of their mouth and the poor from the hand of the mighty so that the helpless has hope and the unrighteous must shut its mouth. Ultimately, the wisdom of God is with those who are living, not by circumstances, as was pointed out, not by circumstances, but living through circumstances by the light of God's word. And that is the context that Paul's uh, using there. Then he's going to quote another passage. He says, he takes the... Uh, He takes uh, the wise in their craftiness, and again he says, The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. 
This is human wisdom. That's from Psalm 94. And it's important, Paul's assuming that the people who are reading have these verses memorized. So if he quotes one verse, they know all. If I said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you would go, oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? That's what Paul's assuming. So he's assuming people know this passage that he's talking about. Let's read it so that we uh, match his assumptions. 94. Verses 1 to 14. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. This is God in the judgment. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They build themselves up. They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedly vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. And they said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. I'm getting by with it. Must be okay. Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who plants the ear, he can hear. He who formed the eye, he can see. He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are mere breath. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, whom you teach out of your law, that they may grant him relief from the days of adversary until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. This life will be tough for the righteous, but if they live by the word of God, ultimately they will see the reward. The danger is to believe the rewards are now. That the blessing and the curse is now. So I did something, it got blessed, so there God is blessing me, so I'm free to do that. The Bible says that the day of judgment is later, and that the blessing of God will be in the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the poor. They shall inherit the earth. This is about the kingdom. It's not about now. It's not the prosperity gospel now. It's the full promises of God in the kingdom that will come. So, Paul then picks up from this that ministry that is trying to be relevant and wise in this world is not ministry at all, but knowledgeable, uh, being knowledgeable of God and His word is the basis of ministry. So he says, as he ends this, so then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. He's talking about the congregation. Whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, all things present and things to come, those belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. This is all going in the direction that God is promising, and you're holding on for that to to happen. Now he's going to say, let me tell you how to think of ministers. And that's what chapter 4 is about. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this. So let a man regard us in this manner, who's us, Apollos, Paul, to some extent we can include pastors and deacons in this. 
what we call leadership. It's not leadership, it's servanthood, but you get the idea. As servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Which means, one, you have to know Christ, and two, you have to know the mysteries of God that are in His Word. Okay? Not that you study the week before so you can do a sermon. In this case, moreover, he says, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful is the, is the um, meaning of the word. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. Paul says, I'm pretty, you know, if I really examine myself, I think I'm doing this right. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait for the Lord to come, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. And then each man's praise shall come from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. Now what is Paul saying? He's given us a different way to look at ministers. They are to be seen as stewards of the mysteries and message of God. And the basis of this judgment for them is going to be their faithfulness and trustworthiness to that. Are they true to the word of God, both in what they say and in what they do? The true judge is not the minister himself, or even the people of God, the congregation, but God himself. In other words, God is watching. This is about the fear of the Lord. This is about trusting what God says, even though everything looks like we should minister a different way. It's not as successful. We live in a world with a business model, an entrepreneurial ministry, and not one faithful to the word. Noah preached 100 years with no converts, but he was faithful to the word. We've got people who alter the word. As soon as we use a different phrase, more people come, okay, then we'll use the new phrase. That's dangerous. So Paul says, he's not concerned with the judgment of the Corinthians, even though some are saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, right? He's, he's not attempting to judge himself. While he's unaware of any flaw in his ministry, he says, that's not the final word. The Lord will judge him and his ministry. Paul fears God and not man. And he talks about this in many of his letters. Why am I doing this the hard way if I'm trying to please men? I remember when I first started ministering relationally in community instead of program-oriented evangelism. And I had uh, a, 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 a treasurer in that congregation... Uh, who kept watching me do this stuff and people get upset and all this kind of thing. And he came up to me one day and he says, do you ever do it the easy way? And I said, you, you're misunderstanding. I, I'm not doing this because I'm trying to be different. 
I'm trying to be faithful to the Word. If somebody will show me that what we're doing is not in the text, we'll stop it. But I can show that a lot of what's being done in churches is not in the text. It's just tradition. And it's functional. It serves. People like it. But it doesn't mean it's truth. So Paul says uh, that... He is using, that God will ultimately judge the heart and the motives, and that will be done at the return of Christ. Until then, we're not supposed to judge. It's really difficult. There are some ministers who I believe are doing damage to the, to the church of God. I try not to talk about them. I try to talk about what they're teaching. It is the teaching that is damaging. They are another man's servant. God will judge them for that like he will judge me. But the reality is that what the truth is is not up for debate. God has given it to us in his word. And when I hear people who are abusing God's word or teaching things outside of God's word as thus saith the Lord, I feel like I have to say something about it. I try not to make it about them. So Paul then says... That God will judge that because the ministers are really accountable stewards. And he explains that he's using himself and Apollos as an illustration of this. Not allowing them to be judged, but so that the Corinthians will understand that they are not to go beyond the scriptures. What is written. Okay. Judge a minister on how his words and behavior line up with Scripture, not the size of his church, the size of the budget, how well-known he is, or how much he's hated. None of those matter. That's the way the world judges. That's not how we are to discern it. Now, he's going to give them a perspective on the apostles. Uh... And this is, this is a, a difficult passage, beginning in chapter 4, verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Now, you all know somebody who can't carry a tune in a basket. Okay? Sounds awful when they sing. And you also know people who sing very well. Now, people can practice that, but that basic talent is is a gift of God. And to treat a person who sings well as if they are better than someone who can't sing is to misunderstand that. You may prefer to hear this one sing than that one. I get that. But they're not a better person. The things that we have, we have from God. And we shouldn't be boasting as if we, we came up with these things. So he says to the Corinthians, you, this is plural, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that, you might, that we might reign with you. Now what is Paul saying? Here's what I think he's saying. It's a t- tough verse. Paul's saying, you already have come to Christ and have received everything that He's promised. Now, it doesn't mean you have it. 
Okay? It means that it's yours. He says, I wish you had it, because then we'd be reigning with you, we'd be in the kingdom. Okay? But that's already done. God has, God's the giver of all that. He's the one who makes the promise. He's the one who keeps the promise. This is not about these men. So he says, you've already got that. Now he says, I want to tell you about us. And he's talking about the apostles, those who are sent by God. And I think you can include clergy and deacons in this, but it's not at the same level. Okay? But there still is a parallel to it. He says, first, I think God has exhibited the apostles last of all. In other words, he's saying, the ones that God, in the order of all things, God has placed the apostles last. That's not the way we think. It's the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, right? Paul says, I think God's placed us at the bottom. Okay? As men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men, we're on display. For God to manifest His strength in us. You know Paul, he, he had that problem and he says, Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away. And God said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, God is going to make sure that those who are have the most will have the greatest difficulty. We think it's the opposite. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we both are hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and in some sense homeless. This does not sound like a lot of current clergy. We toil working with our own hands. We're paying our own way. We're not taking salaries from people. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even till now. Paul says, those who have this calling into ministry, whatever you want to call that, are now going to be servants and their, their life is not going to be better than the church's. Because they're servants. We've got it reversed. Clergy should... I, I get pastors all the time tell me, I should make more than the people in my congregation because I have a higher education. And I usually tell those guys they shouldn't be in the ministry. you got a higher education, get a job. Why be a burden on the church? Okay? The reality is they are not reading Paul as Paul talks about himself. They're following this new model that, that comes out of the, the Reformation to some extent. So, Paul says, we're on an exhibition before angels. We struggle in this faith for the benefit of the church in this present world. Our lives are a contradiction to the ultimate glory and blessing that will come on the church. We're not leaders. We're servants. 
We are not recipients of blessing, but of curse and ridicule. A ministry of success and wealth and full benefit is not the pathway of a servant of God. Now, Paul says in this next verse, you've got to look at this, it's very important what he says. Verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For you have countless teachers in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. In Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So, so I exhort you to be imitators of me. Paul saying, there are two kinds of ministers. There's the hireling. Jesus talks about those. The hirelings don't care about the sheep. Okay? The hirelings come in, and as long as they're getting paid, they'll do the job. But if someone will pay them more, they're, they're off. God's calling me elsewhere. right? Or they will, they will complain about their not being taken care of, right? because they're hirelings. And then there are those who are the shepherds after God's heart who care about the sheep. And they will, as Paul did, he worked to make sure that he wasn't a burden to them, to, might, to teach them, to form them in Christ, that he might present them to God because he understands his stewardship of accountability. Which is why the writer to the Hebrews says, Obey those who have the oversight for you, that they may do it pleasantly and not with grief. That is not good for you. They must give an account for your souls. Paul says, My relationship to you is much more of a father who wants you to grow up and mature and move out on your own. I'm not here trying to see if I can get every cent out of you and every thing out of you. When you have a pastor who believes the church's job is to enhance his ministry, he's a hireling. When you have a pastor who believes his job is to enhance the ministry and the maturity of the body, then they are following the pathway that, that Paul's talking about. He says then, in these last few verses, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon. And if the Lord wills, I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Now what Paul's saying is, those who have the power of God endure through the circumstances and demonstrate that they continue to walk with God no matter what. And those who are convenient, fair-weather sailors, as soon as there's a better situation or this gets too hard, they're out of there. And he says, there's a lot of people talking in the Corinthian church and they're talking about me because I'm not there. When we come back, we'll see how their life conforms to the word. And then he says this word. So what do you desire? This is a fascinating verse. So what do you want, Corinthians? Shall I come to you with a rod? He's just said, I'm your dad. Okay? You want me to come and correct you? I can do it. Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. I've been separated from you for a long time. Okay? Do you want me to come home? 
and find the house a mess and the windows broken and the furniture tipped over and the dogs have made a mess everywhere? Or do you want me to come back and you've been very mature people doing what you're supposed to do and I can love you in coming gentleness? You choose. Right? This is Paul saying, don't make me pull this car over. <laughs> right? And he's about to tell them about a problem that he wants them to clean up before he gets there. Which is in the next one. So let me do the conclusion. He's sending Timothy, whom he trusts, to confirm these things to them. And he will come soon to see about those who are critical of him. The kingdom is not talk, it's action and power. They have a choice to make. Does, do they want him to come to punish as an angry father or in love and gentleness as a nurturing father? Their behavior will determine this. God wants a unified people who love each other and are built up as a temple for his spirit to dwell. Ministers are there to facilitate that unity, not to divide, not to draw followers after themselves. And God will judge his servants for their ministry. But the goal is the maturity and unity of the body. And Paul's going to address this, a, pro, a major problem, where they are maintaining unity when they shouldn't. So it's still the theme of unity, because they're allowing sin to be grossly manifest, so that it becomes a reputation for the church. And we'll talk about that next time. Let's pray.